Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. When you think about quintessentially Jewish spaces, the synagogue most obviously comes to mind. Maybe Jewish community centers or Jewish delis, but probably not a cafe. But as University of Michigan Associate Professor of Hebrew Literature and Culture Shachar Pinsker argues in his study, A Rich Brew, How Cafes Created Modern Jewish Culture, cafes in Europe, the United States, and Israel were instrumental in the production and evolution of modern Jewish culture from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century. When I started this project, this research, you know, I thought about the cafe more as just the background of, uh, of the important things, the literature, the journalism, the culture. But my research shows that really it is important to take something that looks like it's just an institution, it's just a place, uh, it's just a background to what is important and put it in the center. And once you do that, it really enables you to understand modern Jewish culture and literature and journalism and politics in a new way. The café, or coffee house, was imported to Europe from the Ottoman Empire in the mid-17th century. The institution spread throughout Europe and, eventually, around the world, attracting a wide range of writers, artists, and intellectuals to the café's open, democratic ethos. And the café was this new uh, alternative. Uh, It was open to everybody, uh, at least in theory. It was kind of democratic. The first coffee houses in London uh, were known as Tavern Without Wine and also were known as Penny Universities because these were places that were open to everybody. And very quickly, uh, people started to read newspapers there and to discuss the events of the day and politics and literature and other things. And, uh, and this was very attractive to, to Jews. Jews were associated with coffee houses from the beginning of their appearance in Europe, says Pinsker, who was the head fellow at the Frankel Center this past academic year. One of the first coffee houses in Oxford, England, called The Angel, was run by a Sephardic Jew who, like many Jews at the time, was involved in the coffee trade. As coffee houses opened across continental Europe, many Jews were attracted to them, in part because other social gathering places, such as clubs and fraternal organizations, excluded Jews. And so European Jews flocked in large numbers to the relatively welcoming confines of the coffee house. By the mid-19, late 19th century, people started noticing this fact and started to associate cafes and coffee houses with Jewishness. Now, never exclusively, so nobody really thought that the cafe is a Jewish space, but for example, in Vienna, there was a saying that the Jew belongs in the coffee house. Right? So uh, what does that mean? We can analyze it in different ways, right? I mean, you can look at it in a, as a kind of positive statement, but also from anti-Semitic point of view, as if the, job, the Jew belongs in the coffee house, well, the Jew doesn't belong anywhere else. Cafes especially attracted Jewish writers, intellectuals, artists, journalists, and politicians who gathered to read newspapers and to discuss and debate the most pressing cultural and political issues of the day. In the cafe, really, they would talk about anything, any topic that is at the center of the news of, of the day, whether it's a, a Jewish topic or 
you know, a general topic, but because some of these conversations were done in Jewish languages, like Hebrew and, and, and Yiddish, this is also part of, uh, of, of Jewish culture. Jewish cafe patrons didn't just talk about modern culture. They were also busy creating it, using coffee houses as makeshift offices and workshops. Cafes are really places where new intellectual and literary endeavors takes place. People talk about opening or starting a new publishing house, right? Or about starting a, a journal. And we have, we, have this, we have this phenomenon that many people talk about, people who are new to the city and are visiting coffee house for the first time, they're amazed to see that many of these writers and editors and journalists, they use the, they use the coffee house, they use the tables of the coffee house as their walking table. And this is where they do the editorial activities and they discuss uh, poems and, and, and novels and what they should publish and what is good and what is not good and whether people should write in Hebrew or in Yiddish or in German or in Polish. So all these topics are topics of discussion. Coffee houses were also instrumental in helping to spread ideas and conversations among Jewish writers, intellectuals, and other creative types. One of the things that I found really interesting is that uh, because this is a time of migration and people constantly move from one place to another, you, you would find specific people, people like Sholem Aleichem or Agnon or some of the most important Jewish writers and Jewish intellectuals, they move from one place to another and they always go to the cafes, you know. So I call it the, the cafes as the, the, the modern Silk Road or the Silk Road of modern Jewish creativity, and these people are moving and they visiting these different cafes, they compare them, and they see the differences and the similarities between them. But if you kind of draw a map of all these different cafes, you see Jewish migration and you see how Jewish creativity and, and Jewish culture is moving from one place to, to another. While cafes across Europe and in the United States and pre-state Palestine shared many similarities, they also had distinctly local flavors. For example, one of the most famous coffee houses in the Russian Empire was Café Fanconi in Odessa. Odessa was, uh, in the 19th century, was this multinational, multi-ethnic city that attracted people from uh, France and Italy and, and, and Switzerland and also attracted many Jews, right? And, and this was the most famous cafe uh, in Odessa at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. It was a fairly large place. It was open uh, to the outside. And many Jews who lived in Odessa, businessmen and journalists and writers, uh, loved going to, uh, to Fanconi. One of those writers, the celebrated Yiddish scribe Sholem Aleichem, immortalized Café Fanconi in his novel Menachem Mendel. Where there is uh, le letters going on between Menachem Mendel and Shane Schendel, and he goes to Café Fanconi, and for him, this is the epitome of modernity. And he, he goes there and he says, you know, I can go to the cafe and I can do business all over the world and I can buy and sell. And he doesn't really understand what, happen, what happens in Café Fanconi and how people do business in the stock exchange. But the cafe is really important. He understands it and he writes about it. And of course, Sholem Aleichem is, is attracted to this place exactly for these reasons. But 
he, he's writing behind Menachem Mendel and showing us how different elements of, of modernity are, are found in this Café Fanconi. Café culture also flourished in Warsaw. In Warsaw, we have a very important café that was in the early 20th century actually owned uh, by Yecheskel Kotik, uh, who is a very famous uh, Jewish activist and also author. He did it because he knew that cafe attracts people, newcomers and, and people who lived in Warsaw uh, for many years, people who speak Hebrew, people who speak Yiddish or Polish or Russian, all these different elements come together in the cafe and, and this is a kind of public sphere. In the interwar period, some cafes in Warsaw became gathering spots for modernist writers and intellectuals, Jewish and non-Jewish. Then you actually have a place like Cafe Zimianska, which is at the center of Warsaw, not in the Jewish area. And it's a very famous place. And part of the reason why it's famous is that you have a, a group of authors, uh, modernist writers and poets, who are habitués of this cafe. They, they, they go there and and there's actually a kind of elevated space, and this is kind of reserved. It's known that this group of writers always hang out there in the cafe, and people go there because they want to be close to them, they want to meet them. Now, this is a modernist Polish a, a group, and it's very famous because of that, but many of these people, not all of them, but many of these uh, authors and, and poets are Jewish. So then you start having people who are talking about Zimianska as a cafe, as a, as, a, as a Jewish space, right? And you have all kind of heated debates uh, between anti-Semitic groups and between, between Jews about what happens in a place like uh, Zimianska. In Berlin, prominent Jewish thinkers had frequented coffee houses since the 18th century. You have people like Moses Mendelssohn who are starting their uh, intellectual and writing career, meeting in this kind of scholars coffee house already in the 18th century. Then you have poets like Heinrich Heine who, coming to, uh, who comes to Berlin and start writing and start meeting people in, in a cafe. But again, when we move towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, then it becomes more of a kind of a mass movement where you have groups of uh, writers and group of intellectuals who meet in, in cafes, and, and the same thing that happened in Vienna or in Warsaw happens in Berlin as well. Jewish writers and intellectuals in Berlin often became synonymous with and even protective of particular coffee houses, such as Café des Vestens. What happens in this café uh, is actually that the, the owner of the café, he sees that this place attracts all these writers and intellectuals and they sit all day and they don't have a lot of money. They don't order a lot of drinks and food. And he closes the place down and he wants to renovate it and open it as a kind of more bourgeois place. And as Alaska Schiller and this, this group of writers, they are devastated. They say, how can you close this place down? This is our place. We made Café des Westens what it is. Across the Atlantic, small cafes sprouted throughout Manhattan's Lower East Side, as Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe flooded the area in the late 19th century, 
bringing coffeehouse culture with them. They're not beautiful places, they're not large places, they're not uh, luxurious in any way, but, uh, but they have this kind of intensity or, uh, as, as intellectual, small intellectual centers that is very, very interesting to many observers, both Jews and, and non-Jews. Some non-Jewish writers and intellectuals, most famously Henry James, were struck by the intellectual and artistic fervor of Jewish coffee houses in New York. And they're amazed to see that there are hundreds of small coffee houses. And, you know, you think about the, the Lower East Side as a place of poverty, as a place that, you know, Jews are in distress and they need help. And then you have these East European Jews who are very poor, they might work in a factory, but they also, they go, they go in the evening to the cafe and they have these intellectual activities and people involved in the theater and in journalism uh, are, are there and this, this impress very much non-Jews, people in, in, in New York who are coming to visit these places. In pre-state Palestine, meanwhile, as the fledgling city of Tel Aviv began to develop in the early decades of the 20th century, many Zionist leaders saw cafes as unwanted emblems of diaspora culture. There were many debates uh, when Tel Aviv was established and when it started to grow about which direction it should take. You know, the whole idea of Zionism and the Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, for many of the uh, many of the people who were committed to the, to the Zionist project, they wanted something that would be very different from the Jewish diaspora. And part of what part of the Jewish diaspora, or the stereotype of Jewish diaspora, was the fact that uh, uh, Jews are urban people and are not productive and you know, the kind of pinnacle of, of, the, of the Zionist project was to build places like Kibbutzim and Moshavim and to work in agriculture. And then suddenly you have a city and you have cafes. Actually, the, the people who started Tel Aviv or Huzad Bait didn't want to have any cafes. Nevertheless, coffee houses thrived in Tel Aviv. In fact, the city soon had more cafes per capita than most cities in Europe. European Jewish visitors to Tel Aviv were impressed that the coffee houses there were just as lively and hospitable as cafes in Europe. One Yiddish journalist from Warsaw was especially taken with Tel Aviv's Café Retsky. This was a café in the 1930s that was very uh, famous because it attracted many writers and journalists. And this place had a guest book, so people would come from, all the people who came to visit, they could write uh, something about the café. And many people did. So one of these people who wrote in the guest house of Café Retsky was a Yiddish journalist who came from, uh, from Warsaw. And he, uh, he, he wrote, until I came to Café Retsky, I, I wasn't sure about the future of Tel Aviv. Now that I came to the café, I am convinced that Tel Aviv has a future. Why? Because he said every place, every city uh, needs to have cafe. And this is very important. Why is it important? Because every city needs a cafe and every city needs to have batlanim in Hebrew or batlonim in Yiddish, idlers. But it's actually very important what, what he said because it goes back to Jewish tradi tradition. It goes back to the Mishnah and the Talmud. In the Mishnah, there is a discussion about what makes a city a city. How do you know the difference between a small town or a village and a city? And the Mishnah says 
that uh, in order for a place to be considered a city, you need at least 10 batlanim, you need 10 idlers. Why is that the case? In the Mishnah, it's clear, you need at least 10 people who can uh, form a minyan, who can form a courtroom uh, to, to pray or to study Torah, you need 10 people. If you think about what, uh, what this journalist from Warsaw wrote, he basically is telling us that the cafe is really important for urban culture and it's really important as a, as a modern Jewish culture because the cafe is really a modern and secular substitution of the old Bet Midrash. Right? So, so you need these batlanim, you, did, you need these idlers, the same way that in the Mishnah you need these people, you needed to have these people in order to pray and to study Torah. Now you need to, you need to have these people who are free and can spend time in the cafe because these people are the writers, these people are the journalists, these people are the artists, these people are the intellectuals. And without this, you're not going to have urban culture and you're not going to have culture. So when he came to Cafe Retzky, he said, then I became really convinced that Tel Aviv has a future. In the end, Pinsker says, while today we may not see the cafe as a particularly Jewish space, Understanding Jewish culture in the modern age requires recognizing the vital role that cafes played in its creation. When I finished the project and wrote the book that is about to be published, I really think about it now as a wonderful way uh, to approach and understand uh, Jewish modernity in general through the lens of this place that looks like it's not a very particular place, but it's actually uh, very much in the, in the center uh, of Jewish modernity. And in this sense, you can really say that, that cafes created a modern Jewish culture. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.